Thank you, Ron. Would you please open your Bibles to Micah chapter 5. If you're following along on the Pew Bibles, it's on page 778. As George mentioned last week, these are sometimes difficult to find because they're not very long, but uh, it's Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right? I originally selected this passage because it predicts so clearly the birthplace of Messiah. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But as is so often the case, uh, after you select a passage and then you begin to study it, you see that there is much more there than you originally knew. And what I have seen is that this passage not only looks and predicts the birthplace of Jesus at His first coming, it also teaches us how to live as we wait for His second coming. Micah prophesied during the 8th century B.C. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. And like many prophets, he both predicted judgment as well as predicted salvation. Israel, in this context, had committed great sins against God. They had given themselves over to idols. You can read about that in the first chapter. They were likely hoping that the idols that they were worshiping would bring them prosperity, would even bring them salvation against national enemies. They had also sinned against one another, which is often what happens when we neglect the love of God. We start neglecting our love for one another. The rich were taking advantage of the poor and seizing their land. Maybe most importantly, the rulers over the people that were supposed to care for them were committing gross injustices in the land. And so, Micah not only indicts Israel for her sin, he pronounces a judgment. A judgment from God. A prediction that Judah will go into exile in Babylon. At the end of chapter 3, we read that Zion will be plowed like a field. That's the judgment part. But Micah also predicted that a remnant would be rescued from exile. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says it this way, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. So while Israel would be exiled, scattered, they would one day be gathered as sheep in a sheepfold by the shepherd. That was the promise for the remnant. The faithful remnant who repented of their sins and looked to the promises of God. These promises for the remnant are promises that apply to all people following what we read in Micah, all people who repent of their sins 
and look to the promises of God. These promises for the remnant, therefore, can apply to you and to me. Our passage this morning does not focus exclusively on the rescue of the remnant. It focuses more specifically on the one who would come to rescue the remnant. The ruler who would rescue the remnant. God will gather His sheep like a flock. Our passage this morning speaks of the shepherd who would come to do that gathering of the flock. The good shepherd, our Messiah. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read all of Micah 5. The first part, predicting the birthplace of the Messiah clearly, but the rest of it, teaching us about how we are to live as we wait for His return. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great." To the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and I will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off your cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The context of this oracle of our passage, the historical context, is seen in verse 1. A siege 
is laid against Jerusalem. The enemies are at the gate. This siege could possibly be referring to the Assyrian siege in 701 B.C. when Sennacherib invaded Jerusalem during Hezekiah's reign. Or it could refer to Nebuchadnezzar's siege a century later. While I don't think it's unimportant to know um, which it's referring to, I do not think it is necessary to know the specifics to understand how this passage applies. Most scholars believe the reference to Assyria in verse 5, the reference to the land of Nimrod in verse 6, which could be referring to Babylon, are a figurative way of speaking of all of the enemies of God's people throughout time. So the passage applies whether it's in 701 B.C., 586 B.C., or even in our day today. The point is not which specific enemy is in view in verse 1. The point is that God promises to provide a ruler who will rescue a remnant from their enemies. More specifically, Micah wants us to know who this ruler will be, how he will deliver his people, and how we are to live in light of the rescue of his people. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is focus in on one truth about this ruler who will rescue the remnant, specifically one truth about how he will rescue And then I want to look at three truths about how we are to live in light of this rescue. Let's begin with the way God's ruler, His Messiah, saves. This is what we learn in verses 2 to 4. God's ruler will rescue in God's strength. In God's strength. We are told in verse 2 that this coming Messiah will be a ruler. But His rule is set up in contrast to the majority of former rulers in Israel and in contrast, really, to all rulers throughout the world. The first contrast is that He will prove successful to stand against the enemy. Whereas whoever the ruler or the judge is in mind in verse 1 was unsuccessful. He was struck on the cheek with a rod where other rulers before the Messiah were unsuccessful in the face of their enemies. This ruler will stand and deliver. And through him, God's people will dwell secure. The other contrast is that instead of ruling in human strength and in pride, this ruler will rule with God's strength. Look at verse 4. The ruler who rescues the sheep from their enemies, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of 
of the name of the Lord his God. Rulers before were trusting in their own strength or in the strength of alliances that they had with other people. But God's anointed Messiah, He will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. But it's interesting that this strong Savior, this successful King, comes from such humble origins. We are told He will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. A town too little to be listed among the clans of Judah. What this means is that it probably wasn't big enough to have any type of political or military significance. The coming ruler, God's Messiah, His strong Savior, would not be born in the palace of the citadel. He would be born in a podunk town without even a stop sign, most likely. But although Bethlehem didn't have significance in the eyes of the powers that be in the world, it had great significance in God's plan. This was the same podunk town, by the way, that David came from of old. David, the one to whom God promised that His kingdom would have no end. And that there would be a ruler who sat on the throne forever. And His reign extended to the ends of the earth. That's where David was from. So it only makes sense that God's coming Messiah would be from there as well. But the point I want to highlight is the humble nature of the origins of the strong Savior. Remember the events of David's rise to the throne. God sent Samuel into the middle of nowhere to Jesse's house. And as all of his brothers were lined up before him, who was the one who was selected? The youngest of them. The one who was tending the sheep. And as David in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel was brought to the field of battle where Goliath was. He couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. All people are mocking this shepherd boy. But as he stands in the face of Goliath, he says to Goliath and to all who are listening something that is fundamental to us understanding the way God saves. He saves not by human strength. Not by human might. He saves through the strength that is provided by the Lord. Micah says the same about the offspring of David, the Messiah. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God. The kings of Israel were largely proud, put too much confidence in their own strength, in alliances with other nations, as I have mentioned, in their numbers, but not God's anointed king. He is like David before him who says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust 
in the name of the Lord our God. That's the secret sauce for God's Messiah. A ruler from Bethlehem who would be empowered by God, not through human strength. Who would obey God. Who would rule for God. Who would obey God to the point of death. A ruler born in obscurity who would one day be raised to glory. He became so great that eventually he would establish a secure eternal kingdom to the very ends of the earth. But this promise, this picture of the universal reign of God's ruler did not come all at once. And so what does that mean for the original listeners of Micah? And what does that mean for us? That means that the remnant will have to wait until the Lord comes. This comes out in verse 3. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of His brothers shall return to the people of Israel. What this means is that the enemies of God's people They will continue to oppose God's people until the Messiah comes. The deliverance will not be immediate. Now the reference to the one who is in labor in verse 3, what do you think that means? I think immediately at this time of year and with the reference to Bethlehem, we think that that refers to when Mary went into labor before she gave birth to Jesus. But if you look back just one page in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, we see that labor in this context can also refer to the pain that people face as they live under the oppression of the enemy until final rescue comes. Let's read verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now I'm inclined to think there's a double fulfillment in this verse. There is a sense in which Jesus came to rescue His people from their enemies when He was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He came to save His people from their sins. And when He died on that cross, we know that it was finished. And yet at the same time, there is so much salvation that awaits the people of God. We continue to experience labor pains until Christ returns to bring final deliverance from our enemies. So what does Micah 5 teach us about how we ought to live our lives as we wait for His return? He has come at His first coming to bring salvation and yet we are still waiting on the final salvation of our God. I think there are three things that we can learn from Micah 5. 
First, we're given a ground for confidence as we wait. Second, a commission as we wait. And third, a call to consecration as we wait. Let's look first at this ground for confidence as we wait. More specifically, I would say we can have confidence as we wait that God's Messiah will deliver us fully and finally from our enemies. We see this truth in verses 5 to 6. In verse 5, we read, speaking of this Messiah, I believe, and He shall be their peace. But then in verse 6, we see a parallel comment that I think tells us what this means. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian. Remember, the Assyrian, as most scholars believe here, refers to the enemies of God as a pattern, as a type, all of the enemies of God. But eventually, Christ will return and defeat the Assyrian, defeat our enemies. That is the peace that is spoken of here. And we can be sure of that. The Christ who has come and died on the cross so that we can have peace with God will come again to defeat our enemies so that there will be peace that extends to the ends of the earth. And in the meantime, as we wait for that, God will provide sufficient means to fight against our enemies. Do you believe that? In a world where we are besieged by opposition to our faith, by our own sin, do you believe that God will provide the necessary resources that we need to fight the enemy? I think that's what Micah is referring of in verses 5-6 to when he says, We will raise up against them seven shepherds and eight princes of men, And they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. This seven shepherds, eight princes idiom, I think is simply a way of saying that you will have more than enough to fight the battle that is at hand until the Lord returns. It could refer these shepherds to pastors or elders during the church age but I think it could also refer to all believers. Regardless, the promise at bottom line is that there will be sufficient means to fight against our enemies until Christ returns. Well, how do we do that? How do we fight? The weapons that we wield, we learn from the New Testament, are not literal swords. Most of you are familiar with Ephesians 6. What does it say? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle, and so we use spiritual weapons. We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the very Word of God. We fight on our knees. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Or as 2 Corinthians 10 says, 
The weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We can have confidence that the battle belongs to the Lord. I think that's what Micah wants to secure us in that truth and that Christ will win the battle. He will eventually defeat our enemies at His second coming. And yet, there is also confidence that in the meantime, as we are given over to our enemies during these last days, He will also provide the sufficient resources that we need to fight against those who oppose and to fight against our own sin. It is His Word. It is prayer. And that leads me to the second thing that we need to know about how to live until Christ returns. We have been given a commission by Christ at His first coming. And that commission comes with a promise. I would put it this way. As we carry out our commission, God promises that He will lead us in triumphal procession. We see this in Micah's language in verses 7-9. to We also see it in Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 2, which we'll get to in a moment. But look first at verse 7. We are told that the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. Then in verse 8, the same type of thing. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples. Does that sound like the church today? In verse 7, we are told that to some, the remnant will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. But in verse 8, we're told to others that the remnant will be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Until Christ returns to defeat the enemies of His people, His people are placed in the midst of their enemies. They are placed among the nations. And they are called to preach the Gospel to the nations. Why? We want our enemies to become our friends. We want those who are at odds with God to be reconciled to God. Judgment is coming. But we don't want the people that we love and the people we are called to to face judgment without Christ. Now some will hear the Gospel and hear of the blessing that the shepherd who was born in Bethlehem brings. They will have ears of faith. They will have hearts of repentance. But others will reject this good news and only receive the judgment that Christ brings when He returns. But whether people accept the Gospel or reject the Gospel, we are called to be faithful with the Gospel knowing that Christ leads us in triumphal procession and that eventually we will be lifted up in triumph, as verse 9 says, over our enemies. This is the way 2 Corinthians 2 puts it. I think it's making the same kind of point. Thanks be to God. 
Paul says, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. In, as one of my Young Life leaders said, in a victory march. And through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Regardless of the response, one of the reasons Christ's return is delayed is what? So that the remnant can proclaim the Gospel to the nations as we await His return. But where this passage ends is interesting. We've been talking about the enemies of God. We've been talking about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, those who oppose the church. We've been talking about reaching the nations. But where this passage ends is interesting. It seems that the conclusion is not about the salvation of the nations, but the consecration of the church. It's not only an external enemy that needs defeated. It's the enemy within our own hearts, our own flesh. In fact, the argument of the book of Micah is that the only ones who can have confidence in the promises of God defeating our enemies, the only ones who can know that God will lead them in triumphal procession are the ones who have been purified by God. The remnant. Those who are set apart for God. By God. The consecrated. The remnant of God are the repentant. That's who He rescues. And so that leads me to the final point in our passage this morning. We should be consecrated to God because one day God will purify His people from all sin. This comes out in verses 10-15. to One of the problems with Israel's leaders was their sin led to the sin of the people. God's leaders should have been leading God's people, His flock, in paths of righteousness. But instead, they were modeling wickedness and the nation followed in their train. God's leaders should lead His people in righteousness. And that's what Jesus did. He not only provides forgiveness of sins, He also calls us to follow His example. To follow His holy life. The Messiah, so if we're going to follow Him, what does the Messiah do? He doesn't trust in human strength. He shepherds in the strength of the Lord, as we've seen. Many of Israel's kings before them shepherd in their own strength, in human strength. They trusted in horses and in chariots. They trusted in strong-walled cities. But when the Lord comes to finally save His people, we read in verse 10, I will cut off horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. One day, 
God will cut off all ground for confidence in salvation except for our confidence in His saving work in the Messiah. He will purify His people. It only makes sense that His people would cut off confidence in human strength now. It only makes sense that they would be fully consecrated to God now. The Messiah also will not serve Himself or other gods. He will serve only His God. He will only serve His Father. Whereas Israel, during Micah's day, were serving other gods. They were worshiping idols. They were looking to fortune tellers. They thought that these other methods, these other means, would bring them the security and the well-being that they desired. But when the Lord comes to save His people, He says, I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you. This is the picture. God will cut off all idolatry. Paul says in Galatians 5, people who give themselves to idols, they have no share in the eternal kingdom. So if one day all of these things will be cut off, doesn't it make sense that we, as the remnant, as the redeemed of Christ, would cut them off now? That we would be fully consecrated to God now? That we would worship and serve Him alone as we wait for the Messiah? As we wait for His return There are many problems that we face. We've prayed about a number of them already this morning. But one of the biggest problems is not out there. I've been saying this for weeks. It's right in here. One of the biggest problems is our own sin. Christ has come to deal with that sin. He was born in Bethlehem. Born in humility died in humility to pay for our sins. But He won't return in that same humility. He will return in great glory. And as verse 15 says, in anger and wrath, He will execute vengeance on all of the nations that do not trust in Him. And so now is the time to repent of our sins and to turn to Christ. Now is the time to ask Christ to cast out our sin and to enter in and to be born in us today. If you repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you can be forgiven of your sins. But even more than that, you can have confidence in the coming day of the Lord. You can go on mission for Christ, knowing that He leads you in triumphal procession. And you can pray to God, take my life and let it be consecrated unto Thee. May that be the case in this church. Let us pray.
Father, we do pray that You would consecrate us, that You would set us apart as a repentant remnant who looks to You and to You alone to bring our salvation. We thank You that Christ humbled Himself, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, but that He has been exalted to Your right hand. I pray that we would look to Him in the same humility, trust in Him, and find peace that can come only from Him. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.